Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Guarantees are rarely absolute, and they can be sometimes misleading. They are partial, limited, and conditional. For example, automobile manufacturers tell us that we have a guarantee when we buy a new car. Seven years or 70,000 miles, whichever comes first. But, of course, you understand that those guarantees are limited. They simply do not cover everything. It can get a whole lot worse. We are told that if you buy a muffler, that it is guaranteed for as long as you own the car. Then it goes out, and you take it in, and then you discover you get a free muffler, but... They're going to give you a service charge that's almost as much as a new muffler. So consumers have become skeptical when they're told that there is a guarantee. You not only need to ask, is there a guarantee? You need to ask, what are the details of the guarantee? I want to read the fine print. Now, I suggest that some people bring the skepticism learned from human guarantees to the Scripture when they hear that we have a spiritual guarantee. In the latter part of the book of Romans, chapter 8, we are told that we are guaranteed future glory. In verse 18 of chapter 8, the Apostle Paul said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And then at the end of that paragraph, in verse 30, he said, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Look again carefully at verse 30. Whom he justified. These he also glorified. That's our stated guarantee. It's so good that God says he's going to glorify us, but he puts it in the past tense. Actually, that hasn't happened yet. We have not been fully glorified as we will be when Christ returns. But he says... Whom he justified, past tense, he also glorified. So good is the guarantee that he can state it in the past tense as if it has already happened. But still we are skeptical and still we wonder. How good is that guarantee of glory? Is it absolute? Is it airtight? No sooner do you begin your spiritual journey toward heaven after trusting Christ than experiences come along that make you doubt the love of God, that make you wonder whether or not something can separate you from God himself. And then there's those experiences you had with human products that gave guarantees 
but the guarantees always have a fine print so that periodically you can't help but come back and ask, how good is our guarantee of glory? The last verses of Romans chapter 8 are designed to answer that very question. Paul answers this question by actually asking and answering four different questions. Beginning at verse 31 and going through verse 39, in grappling with the question of our guarantee of future glory, Paul asks four questions. As I read the passage, pick them out. He says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this passage, Paul asks four questions. In verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In verse 33, he asks a second question. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? In verse 34, he asks the third question. Who is he who condemns? And finally, in verse 35, he asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Some of these questions are answered by a question. But basically, the Apostle Paul is grappling with the whole issue of our position in Christ. Can anything change that? Can we be separated from God? Can we be separated from God's love for us? He asks four questions to get at that issue. The first is in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Can anybody be against us? That's the question. He says, what then shall we say to these things? He introduces the question by connecting it with what he has already said. The these things, in verse 31, are probably a reference to what has just been said prior to this in Romans chapter 8, namely God's purpose and God's program for the believer, namely God promising us future glory. But many have suggested, and I think perhaps accurately so, that there is also a sense here in which he is uh, 
speaking of everything that's been said in the book of Romans back to chapter 5, verse 1, or even beyond that, back into chapter 3. For throughout Romans, he has told us that we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And that in chapter 5, he said, being reconciled to God, having been justified, we shall be saved by his life. And at the end of Romans 8, he guarantees us future glory. Now, based on all of that, he asks, what then shall we say to these things? God is for us. Now, if God is for us, who can be against us? He is asking, could a believer possibly have an enemy that could do him damage? Of course, he asks it in the sense of a rhetorical question. And uh, the very way he phrases the question indicates that uh, that could not be the case. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And just the fact that he asks it like that in a rhetorical question implies that no, no one could be against us. But his answer is technically in verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now there are four questions and there are four answers. The question in this case is in verse 31 and the answer is in verse 32. Question, can anybody be against us? Answer, if God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up from us all, how shall he not with him also give us all things? There is no possibility of a contrary person to the believer simply because God has given us all things. The argument of verse 32 is that God has given us the great thing. Therefore, he will give us the lesser thing. He gave us his son who died for us, so certainly he's going to see to it that there is no enemy that can come between us and him. If God did not spare his own son, that's the great thing, then surely with him he will give us all things, including the possibility that nothing can come between us and him. Some have suggested that verse 32 is couched in the language of Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham gave his son, and at the last possible moment, a substitute, ram, was found to be sacrificed for his son. God, however, gave us his son, Jesus Christ, but there was no lamb found for the lamb of God, and he died in our place to pay for our sin. Now, if God would give us that, Paul is arguing, if God would give us his son, would he not give us everything else like security to go with it? It's almost like arguing if a man gave a girl a diamond, wouldn't he at least give her the box that it came in? If he gave us the big thing, if he gave us his son, 
would he not give us the little thing as well? And the little thing are all things. For in Christ we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. No. The answer to the question in verse 31 is no. No, no one is going to bring anything against us because God is for us. And let me tell you how much God is for us. He gave us his son. No contrary person is ever going to arise on the horizon. Years ago, when the railroad was being stretched across the United States, there were a group of Indians in the West that opposed the railroad. They tried everything they could to stop it from coming through their territory. Their efforts failed. The track was laid. They decided that they would then physically stop the train from coming through. They got their strongest rope, and they stretched it across the track with 50 men pulling on one side and 50 on the other. And as the story glows, that iron horse came barreling through their territory and hit that rope, and Indians were flying everywhere. Now, if you had been on the train, you could argue, if the engine before us, what Indian could stand against us? And the answer, there is none. My friends, you hear me, and hear me well. If you are in Christ, who can be against us? Who cares? God is for us. Who can stand against him? There will be no contrary person ever to be against the believer. Paul asks a second question in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The second question is, is anyone going to be able to bring a charge against us? So the person himself may not be against us, but maybe he could bring a charge that would stand against us. The imagery now has shifted to a courtroom. The believer is an imaginary defendant in the court. And Paul is asking, is there anyone that's going to come and bring a charge against this believer? But again, Paul has loaded the question. Notice how he phrases it. He doesn't say, is anyone going to bring a charge against the believer? I love this. He says in verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? He stacked the deck by just the way he asked the question. You're going to bring a charge against someone God has chosen? Of course not. At any rate, Paul answers the question. And he says in verse 33, it is God who justifies. If you'll notice carefully, it is, is in italics. The Greek text just says, God who justifies. Some have suggested that could either be a question or it could be a statement so that it, the answer could read like this. The question being, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Or it could be a question. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God, the one who justifies? But either way you go, whether it is a statement or a question, the answer is the same. Nobody 
is going to bring a condemning charge against God's elect. It is God who has justified. Now, if you will recall, when we looked at the doctrine of justification in the early chapters of Romans, we saw that it meant to declare righteous. Now, keep in mind that the Bible in Romans declares me guilty. So I have stood before God. He has examined my case, and he found me out. I'm as guilty as they come. I broke the law. Then I am told that Jesus Christ paid for my sin. And when I trusted in Jesus Christ, God declared me righteous. God declared me righteous. Now Paul entertains the possibility of someone bringing a charge against me. Well, who's going to do that? God's already declared me righteous, and he is the Supreme Court. It's almost like saying, in American terms, if the case has already been settled in the Supreme Court, what lower court is possibly going to bring a new charge against me? The charges have already been brought. I've already been found guilty. The penalty's already been paid. God's already declared me righteous. What smaller court could possibly bring a charge against me now? And, of course, the answer is none. So Paul is teaching in this passage, there is no contrary person that will be able to come against us. There is no charge that can successfully be brought against us. The third question, verse 34, who is he who condemns? Then can somebody condemn us? It seems that the scene has shifted just slightly from the courtroom in general to the judge in particular. He now wants to focus on just the judge. Who is going to condemn? We're not talking about the courtroom where somebody can bring a charge. We're talking about just the judge. Can he, with or without some kind of charge or contrary person, come up with some kind of condemnation? Who is he who is going to condemn us. In the book of Acts, we're told in chapter 10 that the function of judging has been given to Jesus Christ. Now, if anybody is going to condemn us, it is going to be Jesus Christ. Some have gone so far as to suggest that verse 34 is really looking at the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, is there anyone that's going to be able to successfully condemn me? Here is Paul's answer. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He said, I keep in mind that elsewhere, in the book of Acts and both in the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus Christ is the judge. And the judge is the one who died for me and who rose again. So, pray tell, how is anyone going to condemn me? The judge is for me. I hate to put it like this because this isn't at all the way, it's, the way it is, but it's almost like saying this court's been rigged. 
You understand? The judge has already declared himself for me to the extent that he himself died for me. And of course, in his death, he paid for all of my sin. And so, I am guaranteed of forgiveness. But, verse 34 not only points to his death and resurrection, which takes care of my justification, but it also says he has ascended, he's at the right hand of the Father, and he's making intercession for us. 1 John chapter 2 tells us that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In other words, it's as if I sin and Satan brings an accusation against me before the Father, and Jesus Christ is there to say, that's right, he sinned again, but I paid for it. So the double work of Christ, of both his death to pay for my sin and his intercession as an advocate on my behalf, guarantees that there will be no condemnation when I stand before God. Who's going to condemn me? Jesus Christ, the judge? Jesus Christ, the one who died? Certainly not. There is no condemnation to the person who is in Christ Jesus. By the way, just in passing, let me point out that this verse is talking about the intercession of Jesus Christ. Earlier in this chapter, in verse 26, we were told the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. In Romans chapter 8, we're told that both Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit both make intercession for us. They are both praying for us. How would you like to have those two praying for you before God the Father? You will certainly be guaranteed of getting into heaven because the person you have working for you is none other than God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. There's a famous story that's been told and retold many times, but it perfectly illustrates the thrust of what these verses are telling us. It goes like this. Back during the Civil War time in our country, there was a soldier sitting outside the office of Abraham Lincoln wanting to get in. The problem is he didn't have an appointment that day. A small boy walked into that outer office of the president, was attracted to the uniform of the soldier, and went over to talk with him. In the course of the conversation, he discovered that this soldier was there to see the president, and the little boy said, Oh, that's no problem. I will get you in. And he disappeared. He went around another way. There was another entrance into the president's office. At any rate, the secretary came out a few moments later and announced that all who had an appointment would be able to see the president, and those who didn't wouldn't because the schedule was so full. The soldier approached her and said, I don't have an appointment, but I've been told for sure that I could get in. There was a little boy here named Todd, and he said he was the president's son, and he would get me in. And the secretary said, if he promised you that you'd get in, you'll get in. The president loves that little boy and gives him anything he wants. Now, that's what we got going for us. You understand? When you trusted Jesus Christ, you were put into Jesus Christ, 
And that's God's son. So when we stand before God, we're guaranteed, we're guaranteed of not having any contrary person, of not having a charge or a condemnation brought against us. There will be no contrary person, no charge, and no condemnation because God has given us all things, because God has declared us righteous, because Christ died for our sins and is making intercession for us before the Father. But there's one last question. Can anything change all of that? Could something cause God not to love me anymore? Granted, he's done all of that for me, but could anything change that? So Paul asks a fourth and final question. He says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now he's been asking questions that get at our guarantee of glory. Seems to me this fourth question is slightly different. He's been talking about us being separated from God in the sense that someone would bring a charge or a condemnation against us. Now he's talking about, can anyone separate us from God loving us? Can anything separate us from the love of God? Now that's a critical question. If all of this is based on the fact that God loves me, could anything separate me from the love of God so that God no longer loved me and therefore I lost? all that I had. He amplifies the question. He says in verse 35, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sakes we're killed all the day long, we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Can any of these things separate us from the love of God? Now let's take them individually. There are seven things listed here. Tribulation is interesting. The Greek word literally means pressure. It is used in a figurative sense of affliction or tribulation. Distress, literally, the Greek word means narrowness of space and is used of difficulties in general. You find yourself more and more hemmed in. We sometimes use the word, I feel trapped. He then talks in verse 35 about persecution, which is obvious. That is someone persecuting you because of your faith. Or famine, which is self-evident. It is simply going hungry. Or naked, being destitute and without clothes. Or peril. Peril simply means any kind of a danger. Or sword. And sword is used here to refer to any kind of a life-threatening situation. At the time Paul penned these words, he had experienced at least six of these seven things. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But the point of verse 36 is this, and this is important. Paul is mentioning the things that would challenge the reality of Christ's love for us. It is when you get into one of these kinds of situations 
that you begin to doubt that God really loves you. I mean, let pressure pile up. Let difficulties mount. Let your life be threatened with, say, an illness or an accident. You begin doubting. You begin wondering, does God really love me? Paul amplifies all of this by quoting the Psalms. He says in verse 36, For your sake we are killed all the day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. He just mentioned sword in the latter part of verse 35, and now he points to Psalm 44, verse 22, to talk about the fact that we are constantly facing death. This is nothing new. It happened to the Old Testament saints as well. It seems that we are constantly facing a daily death when we think our life has come to an end. It's as if the sentence has already been passed, but it's not yet been executed, that we're on death row waiting for the execution. I mean, just think how many times recently that you thought your whole life would come to an end that you thought possibly someone you loved dearly would die, that you thought possibly you would lose your job, that you thought that you were physically ill and might not live. All of those kinds of experiences in life threaten us, and immediately the thought strikes us, well, if God loved me, he wouldn't let this happen to me. So the whole issue that Paul elaborates on in this question is can anything change so that I can be separated from the love of God? He answers the question by saying, ha, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why, when these kinds of things come along, they do not Stop us. They do not separate us from the love of God. Rather, they strengthen us, and we become even more than a conqueror through Him who loved us. I think that uh, this passage has, um, is an echo, so to speak, of what has been said earlier in the chapter. In verse 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He talked in verse 17 about suffering with Christ and consequently being a co-heir with Christ when he returns. So Paul says, in all of the kinds of things I've just mentioned, we are not conquered, but as we continue abiding in Christ, we are more than conquerors. We are not conquered by these things. Through the love of Christ, we conquer these things plus much more. If all you have is your own strength, if all you do is fight in your own power, it is unlikely that you will prevail. But through the love of Christ, you conquer those things and much more beside. John Milton, 
The famous author said, Who overcomes by force hath overcome but half his foe. This verse indicates the possibility of overcoming by the very love of God. Through him who loves us, we'll overcome all of those things and far much more. Now, beginning at verse 38, Paul gives a personal testimony. And he says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing should be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, we can play with all of these little things that are stated here and to agree that might be helpful. Just very briefly, consider the kinds of things that he mentions. He talks about various conditions when he talks about death and life. He says that neither death nor life, neither of those conditions shall separate us from God's love. Death, of course, means physical death and is probably stated first here because in the last several verses, starting with the end of verse 35, He's been talking about the sword and death. In Psalm 44, which he quoted in verse 36, he talked about, for your sakes we are killed all the day long. So he says, death cannot separate us. He entertained that possibility. Could death separate me from the love of God? And the answer is an emphatic no. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, and in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, Paul explains that for the believer to die is to immediately be in the presence of Christ. So death is not going to separate me from the love of God. Neither is life. And life includes everything that you can imagine or think of that you have as living on this earth, your interests, your enticements, your distractions, your distresses, everything that you can conceive, nothing in this life can separate me from the love of God. So there's no condition in either death or life that's going to separate me from the love of God. Neither is there any creature, for he says in these verses, nor angel, nor principalities, nor power. Principalities and powers can refer to civil authorities. But when connected with angels, it probably has reference to angelic beings like demons. So what he is saying in this passage is that there is no condition in life or death and there's no creature that can separate me from the love of God. There is no good angel nor bad angel that we call a demon that can possibly separate us from God's love. The book of Colossians, as well as other passages in Paul, explain that when Christ died, he defeated all of Satan and his angelic host. So no creature, no angelic creature, can separate me from God's love. Nor can any circumstance, he continues in verse 38, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth. There is no circumstance, now or later, no circumstance, actual or potential. So he says, not things present, 
not things to come. Nothing that you can think of could possibly separate you from God's love. No event, no experience, no emotion that you feel can possibly separate you from God's love for you. Nothing. Then he says in verse 38, nor height, nor depth. That is no conceivable location. No height, nor depth. There are two ways to take that. Height could be heaven. Depth could be hell. Psalm 139 entertained the possibility of us, if I descend in hell, thou art there. Or it could be that height is the highest point on the earth, like Mount Everest, or the depth could be the lowest point on the earth, which is 1,300 feet below sea level, at the Dead Sea. But take it any way you wish. He is simply saying that no location can interfere or intervene with my relationship to Jesus Christ or his love for me. So he says in verse 39, nor any other created thing. Now I ask you, what beside God is there that has wasn't created? Nothing. So what is he saying? Nothing can separate me from God or God's love. He concludes by saying, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And by the way, just for the record, he has concluded chapters 5, 6, 7, and now 8 by using the full name of Jesus Christ. But in this passage, he is saying that if you are in Christ, you are in God's love, and nothing, 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 nothing created is going to be able to separate you from God's love, and God isn't going to do it. He's the one that's declared us righteous. So nothing is going to come between you and God's love. Let me pause here for just a second and make one suggestion. Nothing is going to be able to separate you from the love of God. Nothing. But I don't think that means that all Christians equally understand or comprehend the love of God. Verses um, 35 through 39 are talking about God's love. And in one of the most eloquent passages in all of Paul, he is saying God loves you and nothing but nothing but nothing can change that. But I don't think all Christians understand that equally as well. In Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesians, beginning at verse 14. And one of the things that he prays is this, verse 18, that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. I don't think Romans 8 even does the love of Christ justice 
because I don't think any words in language can do that. All you can say is nothing, nothing is going to be able to change this. Nothing. God loves you. God's for you. And nothing can change that. All you can say is pray that you may understand it, the height, the depth, the width of it, because not everybody does. Some have a grasp of it better than others. But what you need to know is that it's never going to change. Charles Haddon Spurgeon and a friend were once walking in the woods, in the countryside, and they saw a sign that said, God is love. And under it was a weather vane indicating the direction of the wind. And Spurgeon said to his friend, that's really a bad sign. It says God is love and then shows that uh, there's an arrow pointing which way the wind blows and it changes as the wind changes and God's love never changes. That's a bad sign. And his friend said, ah, but on the contrary, it's perfect. What that message really is saying is no matter which way the wind blows, God is love. That's Romans 8. Hear me. No matter which way the wind blows, God is love. And God loves you if you're in Christ. And it's never, never, never going to change. There's a lot in this passage. If I were going to sum it up, I'd say nothing. No contrary person, no charge, no condemnation can successfully be brought against us. Nothing. No condition, no creature, no circumstance, no conceivable location or anything else can change God's love for us. There are two basic thoughts here. No charge can be brought against me, and nothing can change God's love for me. In a word, if you have trusted Jesus Christ, you are secure eternally for the very simple reason. God is for us. And He has given us everything we need. Christ has died. Christ has risen. God has declared me righteous. And Christ, as well as the Holy Spirit, are interceding for me. So my guarantee of glory is absolute and airtight. There is no fine print. I came to the conclusion years ago as a young Christian that this is one of the most fundamental, basic concepts of all the New Testament and of all the spiritual life. If you do not have this issue settled, I do not know how you make it in the spiritual life, and for that matter, I don't know how you make it through life. 
I think those who do not believe that you are secure then must live life out of fear that they're going to lose it. And I think the essence, one of the most fundamental and foundational things you can say about the Christian life is that I have a relationship with God that nothing can change. Now, let's walk with it. So you've got to understand, the Bible teaches that believers are guaranteed glory and nothing can possibly change that. Nothing. Lewis Talbot, who used to be the pastor of this church, tells the story of a man who decided to cross a frozen river. When he got out onto the ice, he started getting worried that maybe this ice wouldn't hold him. The further he walked, the more nervous he got. So finally he laid down on the ice and started crawling across it to make sure that if there were a soft spot, his hand would fall through it and he wouldn't just all of a sudden find himself in freezing water. As he was inching across the ice, getting more and more nervous, a wagon loaded with logs came rushing by and all the way across the river. Now let me tell you, friend, you're not going to fall through. If you're in Christ, you're going to make it. But some are not walking with the Lord. They're crawling for fear they're going to fall. The essence of the Christian life begins with nothing is going to separate me from the love of God. Nothing is going to change my relationship with the Lord. Now I can love Him. I'm free and I can serve Him. You've got to know that you are guaranteed glory. It's airtight and absolute, and nothing can change it. But before I close, let me make one other suggestion. In the latter part of chapter 8, Paul began to talk about suffering. I've pointed that out even in this message. Back in verse 17, actually all of verses 18 through 30 are really discussing suffering. So when he talks about our guarantee, I can't help but think that what you need to do is relate what is said in the latter part of this chapter to suffering. And as I look at the content of this paragraph we've looked at today, I can't help but think that a lot of what is said here has to do with suffering. Famine, nakedness, tribulation, distress, persecution. You see, it's in the midst of suffering that you're most likely to be tempted to doubt the love of God. So one of the very practical things I think comes out of the study of this passage is that you need to know that you're guaranteed glory and nothing can change that. But I think also in this passage, I need to say that's particularly crucial when you're suffering. 
when you're going through a particular hard time, when you are tempted to doubt because of your circumstances that God really loves you, that's when you need to know. God is for you. He gave his son for you. And that means his love is never going to change. Years ago, there was a man who had an accident when he was 15 years old and broke his back, which rendered him paralyzed. And for the next 40 years, he laid flat on his back. But this man was a Christian, and he took seriously the kind of concept we're talking about today, and he radiated Jesus Christ. Consequently, there were a lot of people who came to see him, though they were bedridden, just because they wanted to be encouraged. But one day, after 40 years of laying in this bed, a friend came to see him and said, Do you ever doubt that God loves you? I mean, if God loves you, why would he have allowed you to have the accident? Why wouldn't he have healed you? Why did he let you lay here all these years? And the man said something rather simple, but deeply profound. He said, yes, there are those times. Yes. Especially when I look out my window and see my classmates driving by in their cars or their family. The devil comes along and says, <laughs> you're going to tell me God loves you? Well, if God loves you, why would he let you go through this? And the friend said, precisely. But what are you telling? He said, I point to a cross. And I say to the devil, you see that? Could you look at that and doubt that God loved me? Now, that is precisely the argument of this passage of Scripture. God, who spared not his own Son, will freely give us all things. The proof of the love of God is the death of Christ. That's Romans 5.8. Our guarantee of glory and our assurance that God's love will never change is simply the cross of Christ. Now the problem is we get in the midst of suffering and it distracts our focus and we tend to look at the circumstances and forget. And then we begin to doubt and we think, does God really love us? So Paul comes in Romans 8, and I think the strongest language possible, and he contends that nothing can separate us from God or his love. That in one statement summarizes what this passage says. May I repeat it? Nothing 
can separate us from God and His love. Nothing. Ever. Not in time and not in eternity. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, you are secure. You're loved. God's for you. What else matters? Somebody has taken this passage of Scripture and modernized it. If I were going to put this in modern terms, it would sound like this. God, I may fall flat on my face. I may fail until I feel cold and old and beaten and done in. Yet your love for me is changeless. All the music may go out of my life. My private world may shatter to dust. Even so, you will hold me in the palm of your steady hand. No turn in the affairs of my fractured life can buffet you. Satan, with all of his braggadocia, cannot distract you. Nothing can separate me from your measureless love. Pain can't. Disappointment can't. Anguish can't. Yesterday, today, tomorrow can't. The loss of my dearest love can't. Death can't. Life can't. Riots, war, insanity, hunger, neurosis, disease. None of these things, nor all of them heaped together, can change the fact that I am dearly loved, completely forgiven, and forever free through Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Amen. Let's pray. Father, even the best of human love is fickle and fails. So it is hard for us to comprehend that your love is unending and never failing. But thank you for the reassurance. May the Spirit of God take this passage and this message from it, burn it into our hearts, tattoo it into our minds, so that when we tend to get weak and doubt, we can simply come back and look at the cross and realize that if you gave us your Son, You'll surely give us freely all things. Father, thank you for love like that. In Jesus' name, amen.